Lesson 12 for September 13 to 19, Death and Resurrection. Sabbath afternoon, September 13. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to study your word and in the process, in a way, we worship you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us this week as we look into this very important topic about what Jesus said about the end of life. And as we do so, we pray that our hearts may be thrilled and that our minds may be expanded and that we may more fully show your love to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Let's read that again. John eleven twenty-five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Humans have an innate repulsion toward death because we were created only to live and never to die. Death is an intruder. It was not meant to be. That's why, during his earthly ministry, Jesus showed immense sympathy toward the bereaved. When he saw the widow of Nain taking her only son to the grave, in Luke 7.13, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. To a broken-hearted father of an eleven-year-old girl who had just died, Christ consoled him, saying in Mark 5.36, Do not be afraid, only believe. Every time death strikes our loved ones, Jesus is tenderly moved by our grief. His compassionate heart weeps with us. But Christ does far more than weep. Having conquered death with his own death and resurrection, he owns the keys of death and he promises to raise everyone who believes in him to eternal life. This is by far the greatest promise that we have been given in God's word. Otherwise, if death has the final say, our whole lives and everything we have ever accomplished will be in vain. Sunday, September 14, The State of the Dead Old Testament writers consistently held that a human is an indivisible living being. The various Hebrew terms, usually translated as flesh, soul and spirit, are just alternative ways to describe, from different points of view, the human person as a whole. In harmony with this perspective... The scriptures use different metaphors to describe death. Among them, sleep stands out as a fitting symbol to reflect the biblical understanding of the condition of the dead. For instance, in Job 3, verses 11 to 13, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. And further on in Job, chapter 14, verse 12. 
So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be aroused from their sleep. And in Psalm 13 verse 3, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of the death. And Jeremiah 51 verse 39, In their excitement I will prepare their feasts. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake says the Lord in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Death is the total end of life. Death is a state of unconsciousness in which there are no thoughts, emotions, works or relationships of any kind, as we read in Ecclesiastes 9 verses 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred and their envy have now perished. Never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. And in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. And Psalm 115 verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. And Psalm 146 verse 4, his spirit departs, he returns to his earth, in that very day his plans perish. By the time of Jesus, however, this view of humanity, and particularly of death, was challenged by the pagan dualistic concept of the immortality of the soul, which was rapidly propagating throughout the known world. Question. How did Jesus describe the death of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 11? These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Despite this and other passages, a number of Christians argue that Jesus believed in the immortality of the soul, for he said to the thief on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, in Luke 23.43. The meaning of this text changes entirely depending on where the commas are placed. The oldest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament don't have punctuation marks. If the comma is placed after you, as most Bible versions render the text, it means that Jesus and the thief went to paradise that same day. If the comma is after today... The text means that Jesus assured the thief his future redemption. Actually, Jesus' words emphasize assurance of salvation, not the timing of the thief's entrance into heaven. The context confirms this. To begin with, the thief had not asked for an immediate transfer to heaven at death, but rather to be remembered when the Lord would come into his kingdom. Moreover, three days later, Jesus himself affirmed that he had not yet ascended to paradise in John 20, verse 17. I think we must read that. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. This text, therefore, does not teach that the souls of the dead go to heaven after death. So to finish today, 
Because we understand that death is an unconscious sleep, why is the teaching of the resurrection so crucial to us? Monday, September 15, The Hope of Resurrection At creation, the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. As a result, man became a living being. Genesis 2, verse 7 As long as God maintains the breath of life in the living creatures, they are alive. But when he takes away their breath, they die and return to dust. Well, Psalm 104 verse 29 reads, You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. This is not an arbitrary decision of God. It is the inevitable consequence of sin. But the good news is that, through Christ, there is hope, even in death. Question. Read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. What is implied in these verses that shows us the power of Jesus to raise the dead? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ has life in himself, for he is the life. As we read in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He created everything and has the power to give life to whom he wills, as we read in John 5.21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Thus he can raise the dead. Question. How does resurrection happen? Let's look at Luke chapter 8 verses 54 and 55. But he put them all aside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. According to the Bible, resurrection is the reversal of death. Life is restored when the breath of life comes back from God. That is how Luke explained the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. After learning that the twelve-year-old girl had passed away, Jesus went to the house and told the mourners that she was sleeping. Then he, as it says in Luke eight fifty-four and 55, took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit, or pneuma, returned, and she arose immediately. At Jesus' divine command, The life principle imparted by God returned to the girl. The Greek term that Luke used, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, means wind, breath, or spirit. 
When the Bible uses it in relation to human beings, it never denotes a conscious entity capable of existence apart from the body. In this text, it clearly refers to the breath of life. So to finish today, death is so common that we take it for granted. How, though, can we learn to trust in God's promises about eternal life, even though for now, death seems to be the victor? Tuesday, September 16, The Resurrection and the Judgment What we've studied so far could lead us to think that the resurrection will be for only a few people. But Jesus affirmed that a time will come when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, John 5, verses 28 and 29. Believers and unbelievers, righteous and sinners, saved and lost, all will be raised. As Paul declared in Acts 24.15, there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Question. Though all are eventually raised from the dead, all will face only one of two eternal fates. What are they? John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The universality of the resurrection doesn't mean that at the final day everybody will be ushered into a blissful and joyful eternal life. As we read in Daniel 12.2, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Bible teaches that God will judge the lives of every human being, deciding the eternal destiny of each person who ever lived. Ecclesiastes 12.14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who have patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But glory, honour, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God.
The execution of the divine sentence, however, does not occur immediately after the death of each individual, but only after his or her resurrection. Until then, both the saved and the lost sleep unconsciously in the dust. The resurrection by itself is neither a reward nor a punishment. It is the precondition to receiving eternal life or condemnation. Speaking of the two resurrections, Jesus indicated that our destiny will be decided on the basis of the moral quality of our deeds, good or bad. This fact, however, doesn't mean that works save us. On the contrary, Jesus clearly taught that our salvation depends exclusively on our faith in him as our Saviour, as we read so often in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why, then, are works taken into consideration? because they show whether our faith in Christ and our surrender to him are genuine or not, as in James 2.18. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Our works demonstrate whether we are still, as it says in Ephesians 2.1, dead in trespasses and sins, or, as it says in Romans 6.11, dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to finish today, dwell on the ultimate destiny that awaits each of us. If anything is standing between you and eternal life, why not, right now, choose to get rid of it? After all, what possibly could be worth losing eternity for? Wednesday, September 17. What Jesus said about hell. Jesus used two Greek terms, Hades and Gehenna, to speak about death and the punishment of the unrighteous. Given the popular belief in the meaning of the term hell, we need to consider it carefully. Hades is equivalent to the Hebrew Sheol, the most common Old Testament term for the realm of the dead. These names simply represent the grave or the place to which all descend at death, with no connotation of punishment or reward. There is one text, however, where Hades appears to be connected with punishment. It is in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Question. Read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. What is the basic lesson that this parable sets forth, especially look at verses 27 to 31? What's wrong with using this parable to teach that human beings go to paradise or hell immediately after death? Well, let's begin. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all these things, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, for if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead." This parable is not focused on the state of man in death. A popular but unbiblical belief that many of Jesus' contemporaries held provided the background for this parable. Nevertheless, the parable teaches an important lesson. Our future destiny is determined by the decisions we make daily in this life. If we reject the light God grants us here, there is no opportunity after death. Any attempt to interpret this parable literally leads to many insoluble problems. Actually, the details of the picture seem purposely awkward in order to show us that Jesus did not intend his words to be taken literally, but figuratively. Question. What warnings did Jesus pronounce regarding hell? Let's look at Matthew 5, 22, 29 and 30. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And then verses 29 and 30. And they read... If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And chapter 23, verse 33. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? In many Bible translations, the word hell appears 11 times on Jesus' lips. He actually used the Greek term Gehenna from the Hebrew name Gehinnom, Valley of Hinnom. According to the Old Testament, in this gorge south of Jerusalem, Kings Ahaz and Manasseh conducted the horrendous pagan rite of burning children to Moloch, as we read in Second Chronicles 28 verse 3 and chapter 33 verse 6. Let's look at Second uh, Chronicles 28 3. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnon and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And Second Chronicles 33, verse 6, Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnon. 
His, he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Later, godly King Josiah brought the practice to a halt in Second Kings 23 verse 10, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire of Molech. Because of the sins perpetrated in it, Jeremiah prophesied that God would make the place a valley of slaughter. In Jeremiah 7, 32 and 33, Therefore behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And chapter 19, verse 6, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Hence, for the Jews, the valley became a symbol of the last judgment and the punishment of the impenitent. Jesus used the name figuratively, without explaining any details regarding the time and place of the punishment, which we find in other biblical passages. Hell, though, is not a place of eternal punishment. Thursday, September 18. Jesus conquered death. Question. Why was Lazarus's resurrection the crowning miracle of Christ's earthly ministry? Well, let's read the story in John chapter 11, verses 38 to 40. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the man or the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who were standing by me, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him, and let him go. Though Jesus had raised two others from the dead, none was as dramatic as this. Lazarus has been dead for four days, a fact that Martha corroborated at the graveside. Jesus performed the miracle in the full light of day before a crowd of respected witnesses from Jerusalem. The evidence couldn't be dismissed. Still, far more important than Lazarus's resurrection was Jesus' own resurrection. Since he had life in himself, he not only has the power to raise the dead and give life to whom he wills, 
as we read in John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will, but he also has the power to lay down his own life and take it again, as we read in John 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. His resurrection proved this convincingly. Question. What is the relationship between Christ's resurrection and ours? Why is his resurrection so important for our salvation? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 to 20. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's power to break the bonds of death is undisputed. He arose from the sepulchre as the firstfruits of those who slept in him. His resurrection is the guarantee of every believer's resurrection, for he has the keys of death, as we read in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. In the book Desire of Ages, page 786 and 787, we read, To the believer, Christ is the resurrection and the life. In our Saviour, the life that was lost through sin is restored. For he has life in himself to quicken whom he will. He is invested with the right to give immortality. The life that he laid down in humanity, he takes up again and gives to humanity. And so to finish the day, after Vladimir Lenin died, his body was frozen in the belief that eventually science would allow him to be brought back to life. So far, the prospects aren't looking so good, are they? Death is so powerful that only the one who first created life can restore it. What does this truth tell us about why we must trust that Jesus can and will resurrect us as he promised? Friday, September 19. From the book Great Controversy, page 644, The voice of the Son of God calls forth the sleeping saints. He looks upon the graves of the righteous, then raising his hands to heaven he cries, Awake, 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 ye that sleep in the dust, and arise. Throughout the length and breadth of the earth, the dead shall hear that voice, and they that hear shall live. From the prison house of death they come, clothed with immortal glory, crying, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 
and the living righteous and the risen saints unite their voices in a long, glad shout of victory. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, we've all struggled with the reality of death, the seeming finality of it, and the seeming senselessness of it. If, as many believe, there is no God, no hope of eternal life and no resurrection, then what does human life itself mean? What can it mean if, sooner or later, everyone who ever lived dies and every memory of them is forever gone? How does our understanding of the resurrection answer this otherwise unsolvable dilemma? And two, what are some of the dangers inherent in the idea of the immortality of the soul? Why is Satan eager to propagate this non-biblical belief? What role will this concept play in the religious scenario at the time of the end? Think about all the potential deceptions out there from which those who understand death as asleep until the resurrection are spared. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled The Story Box. Muka is the third wife of a Himba headman living in northern Namibia. While some Himba children have gone to school, few who remain in the settlements can read or write. They pass their history and culture to their children during story times around a fire in the evening. For more than 15 years, Seventh-day Adventist missionaries have been working with the Himba, befriending them, teaching them about God, showing they care. They prayed for Mukha when she was seriously ill and God healed her. Mukha's husband respects the missionaries for what they are doing to help his family and his people. Mukha enjoys the missionaries' visits and eagerly takes part in their prayer times. She wishes she could attend worship services, but the nearest worship service is too far away to walk, and the family is too large to ride in a donkey cart. So, Mukha contends herself with praying when she has free moments. Recently, the missionaries held a special camp meeting for the Himba people. Everyone was invited, and nearly everyone went. At the meetings, the missionaries gave the headmen a special gift, a solar-powered MP3 player. They showed the men how to lay the MP3 player in the sun to charge the batteries and how to turn the player on so they can listen to God's stories in their own language. Returning home, Mooka's husband gave the MP3 player to his first wife to listen to. When she finished listening to the stories, she passed it on to Mooka so she and her children could hear God's stories. She passed it on to the next wife, and so around the circle of families, the stories of Jesus are being woven into the fabric of Himba life. I understand God better now after hearing the stories of the missionaries that have been placed and given to us on the little story box, Mooka says. I want to learn more about God and know how to follow Him better. The MP3 players have proven a breakthrough among the Himba, and a recent 13th Sabbath offering is providing hundreds more MP3 players and the funds to record more stories in the Himba's language. Thank you for your offerings, which help people such as Mooka and her family meet the Saviour and learn to follow Him. 
Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.